Hello, this is Ian Wolf, producer of Diffusion Science Radio. You can now support Diffusion through the Patreon support page at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Send me a message about the supporter rewards you'd like to receive. Or make a donation directly with the PayPal button or click on an Amazon affiliate link at www.diffusionradio.com. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Swarm Minds for Cities and Phil's Physics Fairy Tale. But first up, here's the news. Fair go for CSIRO. The Community and Public Sector Union, the CPSU, yesterday lodged a dispute with the Fair Work Commission, alleging the executive of the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation, the CSIRO, has unfairly tried to cut jobs in areas like climate science. Over 1,200 people have been fired since the economically and socially conservative Liberal minority government were elected in 2013. The Community and Public Sector Union has already launched action to stop a controversial restructure that would see 275 more jobs lost. CPSU National Secretary Nadine Flood said that the CSIRO is unfairly targeting particular scientists and areas such as climate change and that they're not complying with their enterprise agreement. They've picked on areas of research like climate change and said that everyone in that area is redundant. The CPSU is arguing that that doesn't actually comply with their obligations to consider scientists' skills and whether they can be moved into other areas of research. Forced redundancies are expected to begin in July and August. Ms Flood said the cuts would hit jobs in Victoria, Tasmania, Southern Queensland and the ACT. The overall impact is that we're heading for a situation where one in four CSIRO scientists have lost their jobs. So it's an extraordinary process of gutting a world-class research organisation. Decimation is the loss of 1 in 10 people. We're talking about the loss of 1 in 4 people. We've seen vital research abandoned in climate change and other areas, but the loss of these 275 further jobs nationally will have an enormous impact on our scientific capacity. Here's a statement from Michael MacDonald, lead organiser with the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation, CSIRO, Staff Association, which is part of the Community and Public Sector Union. Hi, my name's Michael. I'm a representative of the CSIRO Staff Association. We lodged a dispute on behalf of all members at the Fair Work Commission around consultation and mitigation responsibilities of the employer of CSIRO. Unfortunately, we allege that CSIRO has not handled this redundancy process correctly and as a response we are seeking the Commission's assistance to resolve this dispute. Currently, we are expecting up to 317 staff to lose their jobs at CSIRO 
We're seeing world-class scientists and engineers possibly lose their jobs in the areas of climate change, biodiversity, landscape management and food safety. We've lodged a dispute on the basis that CSIRO management, including Chief Larry Marshall, ignored proper and agreed procedure by targeting individuals and business units for job cuts. Broadly speaking, the current government, that is the Turnbull-Abbott government, have refused to acknowledge science as important for Australia. We are seeing a dramatic shift away from publicly funded science to a more capital-driven science, where science is only done purely for profit. This is on the back of over 1,300 jobs lost since the coalition came to government. We are losing critical research in areas such as climate change, land and water sciences and astronomy. Even places like the iconic dish are under threat. This election, our members will be campaigning strongly to put the Liberals last and to support Australian science. Scientists need job security. Not only does it matter for finishing the job, for finishing the projects, for getting things done, after all, what's the point in only doing half your research? But also they need to pay their bills, to pay their rent, to put their kids through school. Scientists are people. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. At the Inspiring Science Talks at the Ultimo Library, I met Tanya Latty. Tanya is a researcher and lecturer at the University of Sydney in the Faculty of Agriculture and the Environment. She's an entomologist who studies insects, mostly. I began by asking her, your focus is swarm intelligence and how it applies to everything? <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty good summary. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in understanding how colonies of organisms, things like ants or bees or you know even simulds, are able to solve problems despite the fact that individually they're not all that clever. So and when you take that, you can apply it to a whole lot of systems because most of our technology is based on relatively simple things that aren't smart per se. But you can put lots of them together and have collective behavior. So I'm trying to understand how we can take what we know from biology and apply it to technology. And so you're looking at organisms like ants and slime molds and all sorts of collective organisms. Yep, that's right. So ants, bees and termites are all what we call social insects. So they have large colonies. Um, there's usually one individual who reproduces and a whole lot of other individuals that do the work. But what's interesting is the one we call the queen, so the, you know, the head of the colony, isn't actually the head of the colony at all. So she is the reproductive parts of the colony, but she's not involved in directing the others or in you know, organizing the work. That all happens in a totally decentralized manner. There's no boss, there's nobody in charge, yet everything seems to work. You're looking at how this could go for better cities. Yeah, that's right. So one of our big research projects is trying to apply what we learn from social insects to, to cities. And so our cities are based on lots of different infrastructure networks like water networks, power grids, um, road networks, all of these different types of things. And increasingly, they are becoming really complex. So, I mean, your power grid now has many, many more parts than it used to. They're becoming interconnected. So the power grid feeds in 
to say the water distribution network, which feeds into everything else. All the networks are interconnected and they're becoming decentralized. So if you think of the example of a power grid, it used to be that you had one central production you know, facility that then distributed power across the grid. Well, we're now moving into a model where, you know, houses are able to contribute to the grid as well as take it out. So they're becoming more decentralized as well. And so our argument is that if you're going to start moving to this decentralized, interconnected, complex system, this is not something humans are particularly good at. I mean, it's not how our societies are usually organized. Whereas social insects like bees and ants and termites and even the slime molds, that's how they work. They've had millions of years to evolve ways of doing this. And so... A lot of my work is trying to understand how th those systems stand up to disruptions and then take what we learn from them and apply it to our you know, human networks so that they'll be more resilient, say, to damage. So if we have big storms or solar flares or, or trees falling or whatever goes wrong, the network can still just root around the problem. Yeah, so it's a couple of different things. It's being able to reroute around the problem. It's being strong in the first place so that you don't have that break ever happen. And it's recovering in the event that there is a break. So there's different steps um, involved in recovery. And, you know, again, the social insects have to deal with these sorts of things all the time. I mean, people come by and kick over their anthill, you know, or, you know, a beehive gets invaded, gets infected by a disease. There's things that happen and the colonies as a whole of all have to be able to recover from those types of disruptions. So it's kind of trying to learn how to do that, you know, in an increasingly disrupted world <laughs> where things go wrong quite a lot. So how are the ants doing this? Well, we don't know yet. <laughs> that, that's the million dollar question. So, I mean, I kind of tend to oversimplify when I say ants, and it sort of assumes that they're all the same, but there are lots and lots of different ant species. There's more than 1,500 species just in Australia. So our, we have a lot of different creatures, and they're very, very different from one another. Their behavior is different. The way their colonies are organized is different. So it's, it's really what we're hoping to do is look at a whole bunch of different species and develop almost a toolkit of solutions, because different species will have come up with different ways to deal with the problems that occur in their environment and that they can deal with. And so it's not so much looking at what do ants as a monolith do, it's learning about what do different ants do in different situations and which of those things can we pick and choose from to use in our own systems. So how would this apply to what you're looking at? So I'm, I've got some notes here that um, you've looked at things like the Internet of Things and drones and robots, as well as the electricity and the water networks. Yeah, so I mean, that, that's the tricky part, really. We, you, you can't really just do what ants do. That, that's what we're definitely starting to see. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of obvious. Ants are not people. And so I work quite extensively with people who do civil engineering, computer science, mathematics, logistics. I mean, they're the experts in those fields. And so we go to them and say, we know how ants do this thing. Can you now help us turn this into a useful algorithm. And so it, it can vary from having an algorithm to say repair a network, so for example, in a power grid, to being more of a design principle. So if we know how a colony tends to organize themselves in a resilient way, then we can take that design principle and apply it to, to human systems. But that really, that is the tricky part, is figuring out how to do that in a way that actually works and isn't just sort of theoretical. The creatures you're looking at are heavily decentralized and they're small individuals that aren't too bright that work together in a way that's very bright. Yeah, typically. Although again, it's 
I always sort of generalize and say they're not very <laughs> smart. But I mean, honeybees are actually fairly clever. I mean, I mean, honeybees can recognize, for example, individual human faces. They can tell people apart. They can even, in a true fact, there is an experiment in which they teach bees to learn what a Monet painting looks like versus, say, a Rembrandt or some other kind of painting so that when the bee can actually choose which of those is which, even if it's never seen that particular painting before. So, I mean, bee honeybees are, are pretty smart little things. But then on the other end of the scale, some of the ant species I work with are unbelievably unintelligent. I mean, they just, they basically walk in circles if there's no colony around. So we have this huge range in terms of individual intelligence. But the, I guess the important point is none of them are human smart. <laughs> you know, none of them are even probably mammal smart. They typically are not as clever as, as you know, what we used to call higher organisms. And so they have to come up with other ways of solving those types of problems. And I mean, the slime molds I work with, I mean, they don't have organs, let alone a brain or neurons or anything like that. But again, they're in a world in which they face exactly the same challenges that other animals or organisms face, but they have to solve them in a totally different way because they don't have a brain. How do they know that the bees can identify faces and mono paintings? What did they do to find that out? Experiments. Great. So I, I'm not 100% uh, remembering the experiments, but if I remember correctly, what they had, they would train the bees with a feeder, so something that gives them a reward of sugar water that was always associated with, say, a Picasso painting. And, you know, the next day would be a different Picasso, and the third day would be a different one, and they'd have, say, beside it a Monet, which was never rewarding. And then on the last day, you give them a choice between a Picasso they've never seen before and a Monet they've never seen before. Uh, and if they have learned that general pattern recognition, they should go to that Picasso. Where if they're just remembering particular paintings, they won't they won't do it because they 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 won't realize that that is also a Picasso. It's in this category of things we call Picassos. So it's in the same thing with human faces. You can have humans giving rewards versus other people who aren't giving rewards, and just train them. That is amazing. <laughs> and you were talking about transportation networks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so many of the species of ants we work on build different types of transportation networks. So you've got a colony, but then that colony also needs to connect up to food sources. And in some cases, many of our ants, a colony is actually composed of different nests, and those nests are interconnected. So you have the system of interconnected nests, you can think of them as like cities in a country or something, as well as food sources that are all connected up, and you get these gigantic transportation networks. And so we look at how the ants decide, should I build a trail here or should I build a trail over there? And and some of our species make pheromone trails, which is like an ant leaving a little chemical trail of breadcrumbs. Other species, like the meat ants you work on, physically clear all the grass from their trail network. So you end up with this ant highway that's just a cleared um, surface. And so you can look at, well, when do they decide to do that? Because it's a huge investment. Should you do it you know, over here or over in this place? What makes this research fun and interesting is that we're really starting to embrace the fact that there is huge diversity amongst the social insects. I mean, it's not just one kind of ant, but there are many kinds of ants, and they're all doing different things. And it's kind of a nice way of combining that fun field natural history research where you go out and you say, okay, what kind of trials does this thing make? What does it eat? Um, But it's combining it with a real-world application, which is how do we make our cities better? So you kind of get the best of both worlds. You get that technical application stuff, but you also get to really go deep into how these systems actually work, um, which is, I think, fascinating, really. And if you had students who wanted to follow in your career footsteps, what would you recommend they study at university? 
Oh, it's hard because there's a lot of different ways to come at this. So my pathway was to do an undergraduate degree in biology and environmental science and then go on to do postgraduate work focusing in insect ecology. So looking at sort of bigger questions about how insects interact with their environment and then kind of came around from that angle into the the swarm intelligence stuff and then that eventually led to the the urban system stuff. So I came from definitely a biology route and I'm, I'm definitely a biologist, not you know, a civil engineer or anything like that. But there's other people who come at it the other way. So they will be computer science backgrounds uh, and then they get to their postgraduate stuff and say, oh, you know, I'd really like to apply this to biology. So you can kind of come at it from from various different different avenues, really. And I think they both have their, their benefits. The nice thing about having a biology background is I know how to work with living things. So I know how to do field work. I know how to do experiments. The nice thing about a computer science background is those people know how to make the actual algorithm. So they can say, okay, this is an interesting biological thing. Now we can turn that into something useful. So you can do it both ways. And the important thing is to be able to cooperate with the other side. So if you're a biologist, you need to be able to you know, cooperate with computer scientists and mathematicians, civil engineers, all the technical people, and, and vice versa. Yeah. And if people want to look for your work online, where should they go? Ah, I have a website. In fact, it's at www.tanyalatti.com. So T-A-N-Y-A-L-A-T-T-Y.com. I'm also on Twitter, so at Tanya Laddie. So, yeah, those are the places. Well, Tanya Laddie, thank you very much. You're welcome. <laughs> That was Tanya Latty from the University of Sydney talking about the applications of swarm intelligence. You can find out more at www.tanyalatty.com and find her on Twitter at Tanya Latty. The host of last week's Physics in the Pub run by the Australian Institute of Physics was Phil Dooley. Phil had a physics fairy tale about a prince who loved colours and who was lonely. Once upon a time, there was a handsome prince who lived in a yellow castle on the green meadows. He loved the blue of the sky and the yellow of the sun and all the beautiful colours of the sunset. He was a bit of an amateur physicist, so he really liked particularly rainbows because rainbows, of course, besides being beautiful, are also a wonderful example of physics in action. That the white light from the sun is actually made up of all these different colours from the the, the high-frequency blues and purples to the low-frequency reds. So this prince was pretty happy, but there was one thing missing in his life, of course. He was lonely. So he decided to put out a call for a princess who would make his life more colourful. So he put it on Snapchat, he posted it on the palace uh, Facebook page. He might have used LinkedIn, but nobody's really sure about that, what that's for. So the first suitor was Lorraine, and Lorraine is an astronaut. And Lorraine said, Prince, I'm fascinated by why the sun is yellow. It's yellow because it's 5,000 degrees. See, when you heat things up, they start to glow red, then orange. When they're at 5,000 degrees, they're growing yellow like the sun. But I propose that we could get a different sun, that we, with my rocket, I will drive I will pull the planet to this star here. It's a blue giant, because every fairy tale needs a giant. It's 40,000 degrees. It emits ultraviolet. If it's lots of blue light. And it, it's a type O0 for the star nerds out there. You know who you are. So I propose to, with my rocket, pull the planet into orbit around this blue star. Now, 
coincidentally, my five-year-old niece drew this picture, which shows exactly what's going on. There's a rocket pulling the Earth to another star. Anyhow, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Um, so the prince said, well, uh, let me think about this. What will the world look like? There we go. We've got the blue sun. Um, and there's, there's, there's a lot of UV, which, of course, we can't see. Um, so we've lost some of the oranges and reds because proportionately there's more blues. And the prince said, look, I'm worried about this UV. It's going to give us skin cancer. It's going to blind us. And, and also, because it's such a hot sun, we'll have to be, to be in the habitable zone that Graham's has told us about. We'll have to be further away. You see our, our rainbow has lost some of its oranges and reds. We'll need to be further out from the star to be able to be in the habitable zone so all of the water doesn't boil off. So we'll need a longer orbit. And that means Christmas won't come around as often. <laughs> and she said, oh, yeah, but, but the summers will be longer. And he said, yeah, but the winters will be longer too, duh. And she said, well, actually, the reason I really want to go there is because my birthday won't come around so much, so I'll stay younger forever. And he said, you really are a princess, but not the kind of princess I'm interested in. The next suitor was Jane. And Jane said, I'm an, I'm an astronomer. I'm obsessed, Prince, by why the sky is blue. You see, it's blue because of this process called Rayleigh scattering. As the sun's light comes over through the atmosphere, the nitrogen and the oxygen bounce it around. And what happens is it bounces the blue light more than the red. So light passing over our head, the blue bit gets bounced down to us. That's why the sky looks blue. When we look at a sunset, the blue's been bounced away and the red keeps coming through. That's why a sunset looks red. But, Prince, I have sent a rover to Mars and I know that this is what the sunset looks like on Mars. You can see, because of the red dust in the atmosphere, that this sky has a red tinge to it and the sunset is kind of bluish because the red's being bounced away by the red dust. So I propose to make your life more colourful, Prince, by pumping 60 billion tonnes of red dust into the sky. What do you reckon? Isn't it beautiful? Goes with my dress, doesn't it? And he said, yeah, but won't the Rayleigh scattering still be working in the opposite direction and kind of make everything brown? And next rainfall, all the dust will come down and, you know, all over. And she said, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, my theory only works for a spherical planet in a vacuum. <laughs> So the third suitor, the third suitor was Elaine. She's a bit shy. Elaine. Come on, Elaine. There she is. She's a botanist and a physicist and a, a bit of a geneticist. So, you know, she does multidisciplinary research. And the prince said, oh, that's sexy. I bet you've got some grants. <laughs> And uh, she said, Prince, I'm obsessed by why grass is green. That's because of chlorophyll. You see, chlorophyll absorbs the red part of the light and the blue part of the light and bounces the green part in the middle, as you can see in our rainbow here, it bounces that back. Now, that's kind of silly. If you were an intelligent designer, would you design chlorophyll to bounce back the strongest part in the middle of the spectrum. No, you wouldn't. You'd do it like this, where it absorbs the green and the yellow and bounces back the, the rubbish at the ends, the blues and the reds. And blue plus red makes 
Purple. So I propose to genetically modify grass so it's purple. What do you think? And the prince said, that's amazing. Look at that, it's so beautiful. And what's more, I think with more efficient chlorophyll, it will actually capture more carbon. It'll reverse global warming and you're going to save the planet. Elaine, I love you. Will you marry me? And they lived happily ever after. That was Phil Dooley with his physics fairy tale. You can see Phil on his YouTube channel, Fill Up on Science. John, you mean... That's right, Mary. I got the promotion. Starting tomorrow, I'm no longer just a shipping clerk. I'm chairman of the board. And it's all because of... Your product here. Thus the... Your name here. Story. A story of refusal to admit defeat. A story of gallant men and women who kept faith and who molded the universal dream of a better life into reality through your product here. The living symbol of our national heritage. A story in the great tradition of George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Franklin D. Roosevelt, and the other heroic figures who, like your company president here, dedicated their lives to humanity and whose contributions to the betterment of mankind will never be forgotten. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your own voice on radio? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Check out the Patreon page, patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2NVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally, on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos from this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, then you can explore more than 850 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Hello, this is Ian Wolfe, producer of Diffusion Science Radio. 
you can now support Diffusion through the Patreon support page at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Send me a message about the supporter awards you'd like to receive. Or make a donation directly with the PayPal button or click on an Amazon affiliate link at www.diffusionradio.com.